0: Well, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's good to see you all here this morning, and I I hope that you're uh, sensing the reality that you're right now sitting at the bottom of an infinite ocean, and the ocean is God's love. And uh, just breathe it in and let yourself drown. Uh, That's what it's all about. As I said, we're going now up to, we just read, go go through the Bible, study the Bible verse by verse. We're up to Luke chapter 13. Before I even read that, though, I want to say this. I hope you all had a good Fourth of July weekend to have fun and get out in the sun and see some fireworks and whatnot. Um, It happens almost every Fourth of July weekend that uh, on our services where someone will ask a question like, "I thought you were going to do some patriotic stuff, God bless America or something." Uh, And then sometimes people who have been here for a while even will ask the question all of a sudden, notice that we don't have any flags. It's like, "Where are the flags?" And uh, why don't you ever, like, talk too much about America and, and do the kind of things, you know, the, the patriotic stuff that churches are supposed to do? And they sort of, 4th of July is the time when they ask those sorts of questions. Um, and there's a reason for that. Some people think that we're unpatriotic, but that's not it at all. It's simply that the kingdom of God is not America. God bless America, God bless every nation, but the kingdom of God is not America, and it's important to remember that. Here's, a, here's, here's an example of why a testimony. This week I met a wonderful guy. He's from Turkey. Um, and uh, it happens to be that he, some time ago, started talking with this lady who was traveling in Turkey. Uh, and he met her, and she's a Christian, and she began to talk to him a little bit about the Lord. He was raised Muslim, but kind of uh, gave up on that, and really was nothing at this point, but part of, a, of an Islamic culture. And, um, but he didn't, didn't want anything to do with religion, really. A lot of people like that. Then he was watching television and saw a portion of uh, this special done by Christian Amapur, uh, God's Warriors. And God's, the, the, the documentary is a great documentary. It's about kind of the rise of militant fundamentalism in Islam and Judaism and Christianity. And I had the privilege of being invited to be on that documentary as sort of a contrast voice. It was really a privilege. And, and I just had a chance to say that uh, America is not the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God doesn't look like America. It doesn't look like any nation. The kingdom of God doesn't look like politics. It doesn't look like any politician. It's not a, about a program. The kingdom of God always looks like Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for the very people who crucified him. That's what it looks like when God's reign. And and the job of Christians is not to solve the world's problems politically or otherwise. The job of followers of Jesus is simply to look like Jesus and to love like Jesus and to serve like Jesus. Uh, We love our enemies. The way we do warfare in the kingdom of God is not by cutting off an enemy's ear, but praying for the enemy's ear to be healed. And it's a very different kind of kingdom. The kingdom is not of this world. And I got a chance just to contrast the kingdom of God with everything else. And this man in Turkey saw that show, and a coin dropped in the slot. And for the first time, he saw that the kingdom of God is not America, and Christianity is not about America. In a lot of Islamic countries, they they really believe us, believe those who say that America is a Christian nation. And since they decide they don't like the nation very much, they decide they don't like Christianity very much. Finally, this guy was able to make that distinction. And to make a long story short, several weeks ago, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, You know, whether you like America or not is not my concern. What draws us together is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom always looks like Jesus Christ. And God is beautiful. And nations do some good things and nations do some bad things. All of them do. That's, That's just the way it runs. But the kingdom of God is always beautiful because it's run by and run under a beautiful Lord who loves like a hurricane. And you are the tree bending beneath that wind. Amen. That's why it's important. That's why it's important to keep these two things very, very distinct. And when you come here, our Pledge of Allegiance will always be to Jesus Christ and not to some flag. Just so you know. All right. I want to entitle this message, Held, for reasons that will become clear only at the very end of the message. Uh, this is uh, We just go through the Bible and then we're on a passage now that... Uh, calls for a message that if you've been to Woodland Hills Church for more than a year or so, you, you've heard some of this before, so it will be review, but it's very important review. And if you're new to Woodland Hills Church, some of this will be very new to you, probably. Uh, and maybe may be even uh, so new that you'll have trouble receiving it, and I just encourage you to keep an open mind. Reading from Luke chapter 13, starting with verse 1. It says, Now there were some present at that time, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate slaughtered some people. Roman emperors would do that, sometimes just to flex their muscle to show who's in charge. Jesus responded, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all all the other Galileans because, because they suffered this way? You think God was punishing them? I tell you, no. But I'll also tell you this. Unless you repent, which just means to turn around, walk in the kingdom way, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? You think God was punishing them? Giving them their due? I tell you, no. But, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, I pray, Lord, that this message would blow away like a hurricane all the cloudiness in our mind and spirit about who you really are. Give us a vision for you and all of your beauty. Collapse every defense and stronghold that we might have that won't let us believe that it really is this good, that you really are this good. It seems too good to be true. And so we protect ourselves from that. But Lord, blow away, blow away the cloudiness of our misperceptions and our judgments. For everyone in this auditorium, everyone listening on podcast or television, I just pray, Lord, that you'd open up our eyes and open up our hearts to receive your word. And I Lord, know, Lord, that my words aren't going to do anything except insofar as you infuse them, infuse them with your authority and make them beautiful in your name. Do it, Lord. I yield to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. The assumption on the part of this crowd was that um, if Pilate slaughters some people, and if a tower falls on a bunch of people, well, God must be judging those people. They're getting their due. It is a theology that is, is as old as religion itself. Go back as far as you want in history, and you'll find every pagan religion premised on this assumption. The way you know that you're favored by the gods is that life is going well. And the way you know that you're not favored by the gods is that life isn't going well. Whoever's getting the toys is blessed by God. Whoever's not getting the toys is not blessed by God. When you go into warfare, well then, the way you know that the gods have favored you is that you win. You kill more people than they kill. And if you end up losing, well, it's because the gods didn't favor you or you weren't serving the right gods. And pagan religion throughout history has been based on this idea that what we want to do is court the gods' favor because then they'll give us the toys and the food and the victory. So you do the sacrifices and pray the prayers and dance and whatever else you think is going to make the gods like you. It's it's what uh, pagan religion is all about. And that theology is still with us to this day. That's the theology behind these passages that Jesus is rejecting. Uh, It's the theology that... Fortune means blessing. Misfortune means curse. It's with us to this day. The way you know America is such a blessed nation is we got the most toys. And those nations that are starving, well, that's just the judgment of God. Something, they're not serving God right. And when when 9-11 happens, well, that's because, as some Christian spokespeople were saying, that's because God's judging this nation. And then they somehow get the divine revelation for who the culprits are. And they name them. It's not my sin. No, no, he's not judging the nation for my sin. He's judging it for your sin. Because your sins are greater than my sin. And when Hurricane Katrina hits, it's because, well, those New Orleans, they were just such sinners. Fires on California right now, probably because those Californians are such sinners. But what do you do with that flooding Mississippi? That kind of encroaches on our our territory, doesn't it? Oh, those Midwesterners, they must just be such sinners. When the bridge collapsed here in the Twin Cities... You had people saying this, preachers saying this. Well, God was just kind of flexing his muscle, collapsing a bird, kills a couple dozen people to show that we are sinners. He's punishing us. It's a theology that's as old as religion itself. The picture you get is this God who just, he's got cookies in one hand and thunderbolts in the other. And if you're a good little boy, he'll give you the cookies. But if you're not, he's you with a thunderbolt. The guy who captured this best was Guy Larson, my favorite cartoonist in the far side. Here's this picture of God. There he is, right there. His finger's right at smite button. Those who are podcasting, you can't see this perhaps, but there's a gray-bearded guy on the computer. He's got his finger above the smite button, and this one guy's going to get squashed by a falling piano here in a moment. But that's kind of people's picture of God. He's got the smite button. It's the smite button pushing God. It's in our legal documents. The acts of God. It's about the only place we ever refer to God anymore in any legal documents. It's referred to the acts of God. It was insurance policies, borrowing an an act of God. In other words, if you get cancer, if your house gets swallowed up by by uh, an earthquake or something, it's an act of God. God's out there with his little smite button cursing you. Act of God. We never refer to acts of kindness or fortune as the acts of God in legal documents, but the curses, oh, it's act of God. And so when... When a nation comes under attack, it's an act of God. And when a drought happens, it's an act of God. The, the, the smite button pushing God. Famines, AIDS, malaria, cancer, it's all the acts of God. And when personal tragedy strikes your life, well, it's an act of God. He's got his higher purpose. He's pushing the smite button. When your child gets killed in a car wreck or abducted by a stranger, it's all part of God's great plan. He's pushing the smite button. And see, that picture of God can do a lot of damage can do a number on your head. It justifies a lot of atheism. I know that some of the atheists who are writing books now tick a lot of Christians off, but when I read some of their stuff, and some of it ticks me off too, but a lot of it, the God they're rejecting is a God that is rejectable. Uh, their they, they, picture of God is the smite button pushing God, and there's, some of them out of moral integrity say, I can't believe that. And if that was the only offer on the table, I might have a hard time believing that as well. But even those who believe, it does a number on their head. It's just very hard to be passionately in love with the smite button pushing God. Woohoo! hoo Especially if you're the one who feels smitten. It does a lot of damage. There's a, a young lady. I, I told this story some years ago, but it's worth telling again. Just before we started Woodland Hills Church, uh, I, I met a young lady named, I'll call her Melanie. Uh, I was preaching at this church, and I preached a message on passion and living life fully on the edge, fully alive, passionate for God, and yada, 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 because God's passionate for you. And, and she came up after the service and said, you got to help me with this. I believe what you're saying is true, but I just am not there. I'm flatlining. I don't have passion for anything. Passion for God, passion for my family, my marriage. I'm just, blah. So I asked her, have you ever been passionate for God or anything? And she goes, you know, when I was younger, I really was on fire fully alive. I lit up a room whenever I walked into it. I mean, it was just, I had a lot of energy and and passion. So I said, well, when did you lose it? Because see, what I know is this, your passion for God and for life will be completely dependent on what picture of God you have in your head. The movies you run in your head determine your emotional state. And so if your picture of God is one that inspires passion, you'll be passionate. But if your picture of God is one that doesn't inspire passion, you won't be passionate. And so, what I know about Melanie is that at some point along, the way her picture of God changed. And looking into it a little bit, it turned out that about eight years previous to our conversation, oh, um, well, here's her story. Uh, she and her husband were told that uh, they probably would never have children, some complications. It was very, very unlikely that they'd ever have children. And Melanie just had uh, a, uh, felt like God had given her a passion for children. She wanted her own child. And they were okay with adopting children, but she really wanted at least one of her own children. And they, so they prayed about this. God, would you just give us a child? Well, they were also looking at adoption. About three, four months after the doctor said, you're probably never going to have children, she got pregnant. And uh, she, of course, was extremely excited about this. She bragged on God, just praised God, told everybody this was her miracle baby. And then, in the process of giving birth to this miracle baby, the umbilical cord got wrapped around the neck and the child was stillborn. And it sent both Melanie and her husband into a depression, but especially Melanie, just something got sucked out of her. Part of her died when that happened. And she wondered why would God give me a miracle baby only to take that baby at the last minute? Get our hopes so high, right at the pinnacle, at that crucial moment. Kill my baby. She went to a professor of theology, and the professor of theology said, Well, you know, on the one hand, we're all sinners. We're born sinners, and, and so uh, you know, we all deserve death, so she was being punished for Adam's sin. Uh, I, I'm not going to try to get my head around that one. <laughs> But then he says, you know, everything happens for a reason. God never does anything that's, uh, you know, without a purpose. So there's a purpose to this. And and he's teaching you something. And in your husband's something. There's a lesson you're supposed to learn. And maybe when you learn that lesson, God will bless you with another miracle child. Eight years later, there's no child. And so she told me this, and I said to her, okay, Melanie, let me get this straight. Um, so God gave you a miracle baby, and then right at the pinnacle of your excitement, right when the baby's being born, God killed your baby uh, in order to teach you a lesson, but he won't tell you what that lesson is. Does that sound like a good teaching technique? Uh, is that, is that, does God do that? I'm going to kill your kid to make a point, but I'm not going to tell you what the point is. But maybe someday if you figure it out, I'll give you another kid. don't scrub again because I might kill that one. I mean, are we talking about Al Capone or Jesus Christ here? I mean, it's it's really a, and she said, so you don't believe that? She thought that was just the standard. You don't believe that? I go, I do not believe that. And that gave her permission to sort of become uncorked. And she had this marvelous, beautiful, grotesque barfing session where all the stuff she wasn't allowed to say for eight years kind of came out. Uh, and, and it was beautiful, and it was ugly. Um, it, it, it was real. At one point, she said, you know, I never could figure this out. She's crying here and, and enraged. But also, there's, there's something that's getting healed in the process. So she goes, how is it that crack cocaine women uh, get to have babies, and prostitutes get to have babies, and teenagers who don't even want kids get to have babies, but I got a lesson to learn. So God kills my baby. I, I just never could figure that out. And see, given her picture of God, and this is what I told her, Given your picture of God, it's not very surprising that you're not very passionate about anything. You go along with it because if you don't go along with it, he'll push the smite button on you, and that could go on for eternity. And so to avoid that, you're saying all the right things. You're still going to church. You're still saying, the God, you're beautiful, you're lovely, and all that. But in your head, you don't see him that way. That was the beginning of a healing time for her. You see... It is true that sometimes in the Bible, God uses catastrophes and other nations that are worrying and whatever to punish his people, to chastise them. It's true sometimes he does that. That was part of the old covenant. The old covenant. He was was saying, here's the deal. Walk with me and I'll show you the benefits. Don't walk with me and and there won't be benefits. And, And so you find that sometimes in the Bible. Got that. But nowhere in the Bible, nowhere does it say that that is the explanation for all tragedies. It's never used as an explanation for what we call the problem of evil. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible, the book of Job, that is meant to refute that theology. Sometimes crap just happens. It just hits the fan and it flies at you. And it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with some deal made in the heavenly realms. That's the whole thing about the book of Job. And Job blames God and Job's friends blame blame Job and they both think that God's doing the whole thing. But the point of the, the story is that God shows up and says, you know what, you just don't know much about creation. You don't know much about the war zone that's going on here. It's a mystery, but it's not about me pushing the smite button. But still the theology goes on. Most importantly, we're to take all of our clues and cues as to who God is from Jesus Christ. Our theology is to be centered on Jesus Christ. And Jesus never goes there. He never goes down the road of punishment theology. In fact, in the passage we read here this morning, he explicitly refused that theology. You think they got smitten? You think that the tower fell on them just because they were worse sinners than you? No! He refused that theology. And all of his ministry is spent ministering to people who are sick and and have, have afflictions and infirmities and oppression. And never once does Jesus say, well, that's God doing it to you. You must have some sin in your life. Never does he give background checks on people. Never does he accuse people. He rather shows what God is like by bringing healing and deliverance and liberation to these people. God's not on the side of the affliction. God's on the side of the liberation. And from a New Testament perspective, and this is so important, from a New Testament perspective, the ultimate reason why there is the crap hitting the fan and and, and the the suffering and the mayhem, the diseases, ultimately is because this world is in bondage to forces that the Bible calls principalities and powers to Satan himself. And what Jesus is doing is freeing people from demonic oppression. We all take hits in this world in one way or another, and some of that is on a physical level, and Jesus comes to bring the liberating power of God, freeing people from that oppression. That's why Peter, in Acts chapter 10, he summarizes uh, Jesus' ministry by saying this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him healed all who were under the power of the devil. That tells us that the infirmities that they had were at least indirectly and sometimes directly the result of afflicting powers uh, that were doing it on people. But God wasn't doing it. Jesus didn't go around telling people you're being punished for some sin in your life. He went around showing what God is life by coming against the infirmities, by healing them, by setting them free, setting them free from the power of the devil and demonic forces. We've got to understand That God's will isn't the only will that affects what comes to pass in this world. A lot of people think that, but that is just not a New Testament perspective. Which means we can't, we must take care not to blame God for what other wills do, human and angelic. Ultimately, ultimately, All of the afflictions of this world are the result of this demonic oppression. When 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 muscular dystrophy hits, when AIDS breaks out, malaria, typhoons, earthquakes, it's all the result of this world being under demonic oppression. When we surrendered our authority over this earth to the principalities and powers, we invited them in and they corrupt the the creation. It's not that there's a particular demon or, or devil behind every hurricane or tornado or anything of the sort. But the laws of nature themselves have been corrupted by these principalities and powers, so nothing operates quite the way it was supposed to operate. Everything's screwed up. And we don't have the authority over nature that we were originally created to have. Someday we will have that back, but right now we don't. And so important that we don't mix up the beautiful God with all of this war zone crap, stuff, junk. And this applies to humans as well. When Pilate slaughters a bunch of people, that's about Pilate. It's not God. God didn't slaughter the people. Pilate did. That's about him. When the leaders of Burma or Myanmar refuse to let aid into their country because they're too proud and so they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are homeless and starving to death and have diseases that could easily be addressed, when, 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 when those leaders don't do that, well, that's about the leaders. That's not about God. God wants to bring the aid. The leaders are saying no to it. That's about the leaders. And if someone gets behind a wheel when they're drunk and ends up killing a kid, that's about the drunk driver. It's not about God. It may also be about the judge who didn't put him in prison after the 17th DWI. It may also be about other things, the, the friends who let them drive in that condition. There may be a, the responsibility may be shared, but it doesn't attach to God. And if terrorists decide to drive some airplanes into skyscrapers, that's about the terrorists. It's not about God. Don't blame God for what evil people do or what stupid people do. Don't blame God for what demonic forces do because God looks like Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals what God is like. If you see me, you see the Father. God is always beautiful. God is always fiery, passionate love. God is love that blows like a hurricane. God is an ocean of love that submerges you and drowns you in his mercy and grace. God is always good, all the time, all the time. God is good. Lock it in, download it, don't lose it. And Remember that in the war zone. We live in a war zone where a lot of crusty stuff happens. But that's about the war zone. It's not about God. Keep your eyes fixed on the beautiful God. Sometimes people will say, well, what about John 9? I bet three people in this auditorium or podcasting were thinking that right now. What about John 9? And you read a lot of commentaries, and they all go to John 9 to refute the theology I just gave you. And they'll say, look, John 9 shows that God is as much behind infirmities as he is behind the healing." Here's what John 9 says. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Here we go again. Let's play the game. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Haven't you read the book of Job? But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed. Ah. So it looks like God here had this guy born blind so that the works of God might be displayed. And they'll use that verse to overturn all the other stuff about the infirmities being the result of demonic oppression. Okay, a couple things here. Number one, this is one verse. It's really bad to bad exegesis, bad hermeneutics, bad Bible interpretation to take one verse and use it to reinterpret all the other verses. Because in all the other verses where Jesus is confronting this kind of stuff, he diagnoses it as being directly or indirectly the result of demonic oppression. And so that's just not sound Bible interpretation. Even if you grant that this interpretation uh, is right, it's the exception, not the rule. And don't overturn the rule with the exception. So maybe that in this one case, God, for sovereign reasons, he has the right to do this, had this man born born without, uh, without sight in order that at this stage Jesus could come along and heal him. Which leads to my second point. Note that the purpose wasn't to punish him or his parents. The whole point of the passage is to say this isn't a result of someone being punished. So these are my third point and the most important point. And I don't like to get into the Greek very much because you you tend to lose people, but sometimes, once in a while, it's important. So you gotta know this. In the original Greek, it doesn't have the phrase, this happened so that. That's not in the Greek. Here's what you have in the original Greek. I put the Greek on top and the English literal translation below it. It literally says, but let displayed the works of the God in him. That's the Greek. Neither this man's sin nor his parents, but let the works of God be displayed in him. That's all that's in the original Greek. Translators and interpreters insert the words, this happened so that, because they, they assume that Jesus is answering the disciples' question. What is the reason why this man was born blind? Was he sin or his parents' sin? And the, the translators think that Jesus is saying, no, the real reason why this man was born blind was so, now I could heal him. And they don't think it makes sense unless you insert those words. This happens so that. But I submit to you an alternative way of looking at things. I think it makes perfect sense for Jesus simply to say, neither let let, let God be glorified. Let the works of God be displayed in him. He's saying, you guys, stop asking questions like, who sinned? Who's to blame? What caused this? The only thing that matters is God being glorified. Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but let God be glorified, and then he heals the guy. Makes perfect sense. You don't need to insert the words there. This is exactly what he's doing in Luke 13. Why, why did this tower fall? You know, what was the ultimate reason for this tower falling? Uh, you know, they must have been sinners. Jesus says, no. But he doesn't tell them the real reason why the towers fell. Maybe there is no real reason why the towers fall. Somebody has towers just fall. He says, no, quit going there. Here's what you ought to be concerned with. Are you right with God? Because unless you turn, you're going to perish. Uh, And so here he's saying, listen, the only thing you ought to need to be concerned with is... How can God be glorified in the situation? And he brings healing to that situation. Bottom line here, folks. When the child is born blind or deformed, you don't need to think God is punishing you or has any other purpose for that blindness. When the accident happens to you, when the muscular dystrophy sets in, when you are the one who gets the cancer or whatever it is, you don't need to wonder about whether God's punishing you or whether there's some other sovereign purpose to the whole thing. The only right question to ask is this. Lord, how would you have me respond to this situation? How would you have me deal with this situation? How can you be glorified in this situ- situation? And when you're the one who's going through it, the question to ask is, Lord, uh, how can I invite God in on this situation in order to begin to turn it around for good? Because the Bible promises us that in all things, Romans 8, in all things, God's working together for the better. In all things. It doesn't say that God causes all things for the better. It simply says that in all things, he's working for the better. Not everything happens for a divine purpose, as though there's a purpose that God has that caused the event. But everything happens with a divine purpose. And I mean by that this. Whatever happens, however ugly, grotesque, painful it may be, God brings a purpose to that event. And God is so ingenious at at responding to evil things and painful things and turning them around that we can sometimes think that he must have been setting this thing up all along. But that wasn't the case. It's just that he's so smart. From the foundation of the world, he anticipates every possible tragedy that could ever happen. And he's got a plan in place in case it does. And when it does, boom, he's there working in it. The only question is, is will you let him in on the pain to begin to bring healing, to begin to work out good things out of this, bring a redemptive purpose to what is going on? Not everything happens for a purpose, but everything happens with a purpose. If we'll let him, if we'll let him on the inside. I read a novel uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't read many novels, and I hardly ever read Christian novels. Um, they just don't do much for me. But I had, oh, half a dozen people or so tell me, you've got to read this novel. Because it, it, it takes your theology and puts it in a narrative form. And it's a beautiful novel. So finally, someone gave me a free copy, so I read it. <laughs> And they're right. It it does, to a large degree, not totally, of course, but to a large degree, uh, really sort of embody uh, the theology that I I hold in a narrative form. Um, It's a beautiful novel. I read it on a plane, most of it on a plane, which I encourage you not to do if you read this novel, because this this has the potential to really hit you between the eyes. Um, And I found myself on a plane. Don't read it in any place where you're locked in public. Uh, because I found myself on a plane with this big, burly guy, had, had a t-shirt that said Bodybuilders of America, was one of these humongous, muscly guys, and I'm sitting here right next to him crying. <laughs> <laughs> He's thinking Weenie Boy or something. I really do get sappy, but, but it's a powerful novel. It, it, it centers on a guy named Mac. McKenzie is his name, they call him Mac for short, and uh, Mac, just to give you a bit bear outline, Mac was um, raised with a very abusive alcoholic father who would sometimes beat his mother almost to death and on occasion beat him severely one time almost to death. And so at the age of 15, Mac uh, uh, ran away from home. And on the way out, he dropped some poison in his father's coffee and, and killed his father. And never was caught for it. Thirty-some years later, he's a Christian, he's married, he's got five kids. He goes on a camping trip with uh, his littlest daughter, Missy, uh, and a few others. And on that camping trip, Missy turns up missing. Uh, this is a hard-hitting book. It goes for the juggler, which I appreciate because very few Christian books do that. And it turns out Missy was abducted by a serial child killer. And after several days of searching, they find Missy's blood splattered all over the place in this shack in the middle of the woods. And Mac and his wife Nan go into a depression, especially Mac, and Mac kind of pushes God away. And... Uh, Lives with what he calls the great sadness, and it would never leave. It never left. He's afflicted with the great sadness for three years. And then he finds a very unusual note in his mailbox one day. It simply says, Mac, I miss you so much. Could we meet back in the shack? It was signed Papa. Now, Papa is the word that Nan, his wife, always used for God. It's a pretty good translation of Abba, the Aramaic Abba, means daddy. Uh, They called him Papa. That was a household name for, for God the Father, Papa. And Mac initially thought this was some kind of cruel joke. But something in him was drawing him there. And after fighting it for some time, he finally goes to this shack. The shack where Missy was murdered. And lo and behold, if he doesn't meet God there. And God is depicted in this novel in the most beautiful way. Uh, God appears to us in this novel however, however we'll best minister to you whatever you need uh, God appears in, in that way and so for Mac God the Father was this sort of sassy African American lady and, uh, and th- this Jesus was the carpenter uh, and the Holy Spirit was this very witty, funny, unpredictable uh, Asian lady and uh, so Mac hangs out with the Trinity for a couple of days and it's just brilliant it's, it's just beautiful and at one point in this uh, time, Mac is led away from the house into a cove where he meets another heavenly figure, not God. Uh, maybe it represents the wisdom of God or an angel or something, but Mac now is on Judgment Day. This is sort of a pretrial for, for judgment. And he sits in a, in, a, in a judgment seat. And he's kind of nervous about the whole thing, but it becomes clear that when the God of love brings you before the judgment seat, it's not about condemning you. It's about revealing what is true, as we've said several times in the last couple of weeks in Messages. And so, Max is going to learn what is true. And they, the judge and he end up talking. The judge, by the way, is this very uh, radiant, gorgeous uh, woman. And, um, and they have this conversation, and they finally get to talking about Missy and her murder. And Max says to the judge, Did God use her, Missy, Missy's death, to punish me for what I did to my father? This isn't fair. She didn't deserve this. Nan didn't deserve this. Tears streamed down his face. I might have deserved this, but they didn't. Is that who your God is, Mackenzie? It's no wonder you're drowning in your sorrow. Papa isn't like that, Mackenzie. She's not punishing you, or Missy, or Nan. This was not his doing. But he didn't stop it, Mac says. No, he didn't. He didn't stop a lot of things that caused him pain. Your world is severely broken, Mac. You, you demand your independence. You humans demand your independence. And now you're angry with the one who loved you enough to give it to you. Nothing is as it should be, as Papa desires it to be, and as it will be one day. Right now your world is lost in darkness and chaos. And horrible things happen to those that he is especially fond of it becomes clear in this book that God is especially fond of everyone because he loves everyone in a unique way. But I love that phrase, he's especially fond of you. Max says, but I still don't understand why Missy had to die. She didn't have to, Mackenzie. This was no plan of Papa's. Papa has never needed evil to accomplish the good pur- his good purposes. It is you humans who have embraced evil, and Papa has responded with goodness. What happened to Missy was the work of evil and no one in your world, not even little girls, are immune from it. But it hurts so much. There must be a better way. There is, the judge says. You just can't see it now. Return from your independence, Mackenzie. Surrender. Let the wind uproot the tree. Give Give up being his judge and know Papa for who he really is. Then you'll be able to embrace his love in the midst of your pain instead of pushing him away with your self-centered perception of how you think the universe should be. Mac is finally, after time, able to let to embrace Papa for who he really is, and let Papa embrace him. And out of that love and that that, that center, he's empowered to eventually, surrender little Missy over to him, to entrust Missy over to Papa. In a beautiful scene, he lets Missy go. And that um, is so important when you've lost loved ones, to let them go, to entrust them to the beautiful God who's going to take care of them. He lets Missy go. And that then further empowers him to eventually, in one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever read in literature, uh, to forgive his father for the harm that the father did. And eventually... He's able to forgive even the man who killed Missy. And it is at that moment that Mac is freed. And the great sadness begins to lift. And he begins to live again. So, the question I want us to ask is this Do we embrace Papa for who he, for who she really is? Do we let Papa embrace us? Do we have judgments against God? Have we polluted our perception of God by looping God up with the war zone stuff, the stuff that hits the fan, the stuff that causes so much pain? So often, like Melanie did, like Mac did, when tragedy happens, we end up, because of our pictures of God, we push God away the most at the very time where we need him the most. Papa is saying, will you let me in? Let me in. There's no purpose going into this thing, but now that it's here, there's a purpose, and the purpose is to heal and to forgive and to restore and to turn it for the good. Will you let Papa love you? Will you let Papa heal you? Will you let Papa empower you to forgive whoever you need to forgive? All of that comes out of a healing center that's finally been touched by Papa's heart. This this week I talked with a couple who just experienced their third miscarriage. And that led to all sorts of questions, and they were feeling forsaken by God. And as I was corresponding with them via email, I suddenly felt that I started to respond. I suddenly felt like I wasn't supposed to say anything. I was just supposed to refer them to this one song. A song came to my mind. A song we actually played here, I think, a couple years ago. I said, I think you're just supposed to listen to this song maybe over and over And let God hold you in the midst of your pain. And the song is called Held by Natalie Grant. And I want to play this here. And as as I do, I want you to, I'm going to encourage you to just rest in God's arms. Let him hold you. Envision him embracing you. Let him heal you. And let him open up your eyes to see him, Papa, for who he, she really, really is. In all of his beauty held. Two months is too little They let him go They had no Sudden healing To think that Providence would take a child from his mother while she prays is appalling So enter your independence. Collapse your judgments. See Papa for who he truly is and let him hold you. I really don't want to say anything more. I want to ask the prayer teams to come up. And if you're here and you want to come forward for prayer, I encourage you to do that. If you want to just come and kneel at the altar, I encourage you to do that. If you want to just sit and be held. A hurricane of love blows on you this moment. Just be blown. Let him heal you and restore you and empower you to forgive all you need to forgive.